This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of peripheral nerve injury and repair from the hand section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Peripheral nerve injuries encompass a range of reversible and irreversible impairments determined by injury level, axonal disruption, and time to treatment. Diagnosis can be made based on clinical examination and confirmed with EMG slash nerve conduction studies. Treatment can involve observation, repair, tendon transfers, or nerve grafting depending on the acuity, degree of injury, and mechanism of injury. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, major peripheral nerve injury is sustained in 2% of patients with extremity trauma. Nerve injuries account for approximately 3% of injuries affecting the upper extremity and the hand. As far as demographics, peripheral nerve injury is sustained equally in males and females. Risk factors include penetrating injuries and displaced fractures. Moving on to the etiology of peripheral nerve injury, let's go over the different mechanisms of nerve injury. We'll talk about stretching injury, compression slash crush, and laceration. So starting with stretching injury, know that 8% elongation will diminish a nerve's microcirculation. 15% elongation will disrupt axons. Examples include stingers, which refer to neuropraxia from a brachial plexus stretch injury, suprascapular nerve stretching injuries in volleyball players, and correction of valgus in TKA can lead to a common perineal nerve palsy. Moving on to compression slash crush, fibers are deformed from local ischemia and increased vascular permeability. Endoneural edema leads to poor axonal transport and nerve dysfunction, and fibroblasts invade if compression persists. Keep in mind that scar impairs fascicular gliding. Chronic compression leads to Schwann cell proliferation and apoptosis. Know that 30 millimeters of mercury can cause paresthesias, which will manifest as increased latencies. 60 millimeters of mercury can cause complete block of conduction. Finally, in terms of laceration, sharp transections have a better prognosis than crush injuries. In a nerve laceration, the continuity of the nerve is disrupted, which causes the ends to retract, the nerve stops producing neurotransmitters, and the nerve starts producing proteins for axonal regeneration. Now, let's go over some more details about the pathophysiology of peripheral nerve injury. We'll go over presynaptic terminal and depolarization, regeneration process after transection, variables affecting regeneration, and functional recovery during regeneration. So starting with the presynaptic terminal and depolarization, an electrical impulse is transmitted to other neurons or effector organs at the presynaptic terminal. The resting potential is established from an unequal distribution of ions on either side of the neuron membrane or the lipid bilayer. Action potential is transmitted by depolarization of the resting potential and is caused by an influx of sodium across the membrane through three types of sodium channels, voltage-gated channels, mechanically-gated channels, and chemical transmitter-gated channels. Moving on to the regeneration process after transection, the distal segment undergoes Wallerian degeneration, where the axoplasm and myelin are degraded by phagocytes. Existing Schwann cells proliferate and line the endoneural basement membrane. And then proximal budding occurs after one month, which leads to sprouting axons that migrate at one millimeter per day to connect to the distal tubule. Now let's talk about some variables affecting regeneration. The ones to know include contact guidance with attraction to the basal lamina of the Schwann cell, neurotropism, and neurotrophic factors which are factors enhancing growth and preferential attraction to other nerves rather than other tissues. 
Now let's talk about functional recovery during regeneration. And in order, they are sympathetic activity, pain, temperature sensation, touch, proprioception, and motor function. Know that motor function is the first to be lost and the last to recover. Moving on to pathobiology of peripheral nerve injury, Schwann cells proliferate and trophic factors are upregulated to promote regeneration. As far as pathoanatomy, involvement of the axon, myelin, and supporting connective tissues influence the regeneration potential. Myelin disruption typically occurs before axon disruption. An axonal disruption leads to distal degeneration requiring regeneration or repair to regain function. The neuronal connective tissue structure provides a framework for regeneration, that is specifically the endoneurium, the perineurium, and the epineurium. As far as associated conditions, predictable nerve injuries arise from certain fracture patterns and clinical scenarios. So the axillary nerve can be injured during an anterior shoulder dislocation. The radial nerve can be injured in the setting of a distal one-third humeral shaft fracture, otherwise known as a Holstein-Lewis fracture pattern. Prolonged compression along the humerus while intoxicated, otherwise known as Saturday night palsy, and extension type supracondylar humerus fractures. The ulnar nerve can be injured in the setting of a distal humerus ORIF, improper positioning on an OR table, and flexion type supracondylar humerus fractures. The anterior interosseous nerve can be injured in the setting of extension type supracondylar humerus fractures as well. The sciatic nerve can be injured in the setting of a posterior hip dislocation. The common perineal nerve can be injured in the setting of correction of valgus alignment during a total knee arthroplasty. And finally, the superficial perineal nerve can be injured in the setting of percutaneous plating of tibial fractures, specifically holes 11 to 13. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over blood supply and nerve structure. So starting with blood supply, the extrinsic vessels run in loose connective tissue surrounding the nerve trunk, while as far as intrinsic vessels, the plexus lies in the epineurium, perineurium, and endoneurium. Now let's talk about nerve structure. Specifically, we'll go over the epineurial sheath, the epineurium, the perineurium, the fascicles, the endoneurium, myelin, and the neuron cell. So the epineurial sheath surrounds the peripheral nerve. The epineurium surrounds a group of fascicles to form the peripheral nerve and functions to cushion fascicles against external pressure. The perineurium is connective tissue covering individual fascicles. It is the primary source of tensile strength and elasticity of a peripheral nerve. It provides extension of the blood-brain barrier and provides a connective tissue sheath around each nerve fascicle. Fascicles are a group of axons and the surrounding endoneurium. The endoneurium are loose fibrous tissues covering axons and participates in the formation of a Schwann cell tube. Myelin is made by Schwann cells and insulates axons to increase conduction velocity. Remember that conduction occurs at the nodes of Ranvier. Finally, in terms of the neuron cell, this contains a cell body, an axon, and dendrites. The cell body is the metabolic center that makes up less than 10% of the cell mass. The axon is the primary conducting vehicle, and the dendrites are thin branching processes that receive input from surrounding nerve cells. Now let's go over the different nerve fiber types. These include fiber type A, B, and C. An A fiber type has a diameter of 10 to 20 micrometers, has heavy myelination, its speed is fast, and an example of a type A fiber are touch fibers. A type B fiber has a diameter of less than three micrometers. Myelination is moderate, speed is medium, and an example is the autonomic nervous system. A C-type fiber has a diameter of less than 1.3 micrometers. There is no myelination, the speed is slow, 
and an example are pain fibers. Now let's talk about the classification of peripheral nerve injury. And the one to know is the Sedan classification, which is divided into neuropraxia, axonotmesis, and neurotmesis. So neuropraxia is the same as a Sunderland first-degree focal nerve compression. And neuropraxia is basically a nerve contusion or stretch leading to reversible conduction block without Wallerian degeneration. As far as the pathophysiology, a neuropraxia is usually caused by local ischemia. Histopathology shows focal temporary demyelination of the axon, however the axon remains intact and the endoneurium also remains intact. On electrophysiologic studies, there is nerve conduction velocity slowing or a complete conduction block, and there are no fibrillation potentials. As far as prognosis, recovery prognosis after a neuropraxia is excellent. Moving on to axonotmesis, this is the same as a Sunderland second to fourth degree injury. Axonotmesis is basically an incomplete nerve injury more severe than a neuropraxia. In terms of the pathophysiology, axon and myelin sheath disruption leads to focal conduction block with Wallerian degeneration and there is variable degree of connective tissue disruption. Electrophysiologic studies will show fibrillations and positive sharp waves on EMG. In terms of prognosis, axonotmesis has an unpredictable recovery. Neurotmesis encompasses a Sunderland fifth degree injury. This is basically a complete nerve division with disruption of the endoneurium. As far as pathophysiology, all connective tissues are disrupted in neurotmesis, and there is focal conduction block with Wallerian degeneration. Electrophysiologic studies will show fibrillations and positive sharp waves on EMG. In terms of the prognosis, there is no recovery unless surgical repair is performed. Keep in mind that neuroma formation at the proximal nerve end may lead to chronic pain. So to quickly review the sedan classification, in neuropraxia, the myelin is not intact, the endoneurium is intact, there is no Wallerian degeneration, and this condition is reversible. Axonotmesis will also not have myelin intact. The endoneurium being intact is variable. There is Wallerian degeneration, and reversibility is also variable. Finally, in neurotmesis, the myelin is not intact. The endoneurium is also not intact. There is Wallerian degeneration that occurs, and this is an irreversible condition. Now, let's quickly go over the Sunderland classification. First degree is the same as Sedan's neuropraxia, which is loss of myelin sheath. Second degree is included with Sedan's axonotmesis. This is characterized with intact endoneurium, perineurium, and epineurium. Third degree is included within Sedan's axonotmesis. The endoneurium is injured with endoneurial scarring. There's an intact perineurium and epineurium, and is the most variable degree of recovery. Fourth degree is included within Sedan's axonotmesis. The endoneurium and perineurium are injured. There is an intact epineurium. The nerve is in continuity, but at the level of injury, there is complete scarring across the nerve. There is unsatisfactory regeneration and may lead to neuroma in continuity. Finally, a fifth degree is the same as Sedan's neurotmesis, which is a completely severed or transected nerve involving all layers. Regeneration is not possible without repair. So again, to quickly review the Sutherland classification, so in grade one, the axon, the endoneurium, perineurium, and epineurium will all be intact. In grade two, the axon will be disrupted, but the endoneurium, perineurium, and epineurium will be intact. In grade three, the axon and the endoneurium will be disrupted, but the perineurium and epineurium will be intact. In grade four, 
the axon, the endoneurium, and perineurium will be disrupted, but the epineurium will be intact. And in grade 5, the axon, endoneurium, perineurium, and epineurium will all be disrupted. Now let's go over some studies. So nerve conduction studies include electromyography, or EMG, as well as nerve conduction velocity, or NCV. An EMG assesses function at the neuromuscular junction, and is often the only objective evidence of a compressive neuropathy. This is valuable in workers' compensation patients with secondary gain issues. As far as characteristic findings, denervation of muscle will manifest with fibrillations, positive sharp waves, and fasciculations. Neurogenic lesions will be characterized with fasciculations and myokymic potentials. Finally, myopathies will be characterized with complex repetitive discharges and myotonic discharges. Finally, nerve conduction velocity will assess for large myelinated fibers. Focal compression and demyelination leads to increased latencies or slowing of nerve conduction velocities. A distal sensory latency of greater than 3 to 2 milliseconds are abnormal for carpal tunnel syndrome. Motor latencies of greater than 4.3 milliseconds are abnormal for carpal tunnel syndrome. Decreased conduction velocities are less specific than latencies, where a velocity of less than 52 meters per second is abnormal. Finally, note that motor action potentials or MAPs decrease in amplitude, and sensory nerve action potentials or SNAPs also decrease in amplitude. Now, let's go over the treatment of peripheral nerve injury. This can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes observation with sequential EMG. This is indicated in the setting of neuropraxia, which is a first-degree injury, axonopmesis, which is a second-degree injury, and gunshot wounds affecting the brachial plexus. And in this setting, you will assess the extent of recovery over three months. As far as outcomes, there is variable recovery depending on the degree of injury. However, most nerve deficits that present after a closed fracture or dislocation will resolve with observation alone. Operative options include direct muscular neurotization, surgical repair, nerve grafting, nerve transfer, and tendon transfer. So direct muscular neurotization is indicated in the setting of a transected, unrepairable nerve ending at risk of forming a neuroma. It's also indicated when there's a plan for an integrated prosthesis. In terms of outcomes, the degree of functional recovery varies. However, direct muscular neurotization will decrease neuroma formation, and there is promising results with targeted muscle reinnervation or TMR for amputees. Moving on to surgical repair, this is indicated for neurotmesis, which is a third to fifth degree injury. It can also be indicated in the setting of early surgical exploration in cases of penetrating trauma, iatrogenic injury, vascular injury, and for progressive deficits. The exception is gunshot wounds affecting the brachial plexus, as these may be observed. Other indications include one to three weeks after gunshot injury with confirmed neurotmesis. This allows time for the zone of injury to be declared. As far as outcomes, this is variable and dependent on multiple factors, for example, patient age, level of injury, type of injury, time to repair, etc. Keep in mind that fascicular repair outcomes are similar to epineurial repair. The best recovery occurs when performed within 7 to 14 days of injury. Reinnervation and sensory re-education may take several years. Moving on to nerve grafting, this is indicated in the setting of gaps that prevent attention-free direct repair. In terms of outcomes, this is variable and dependent on multiple factors, for example, patient age, level of injury, type of injury, time to repair, etc. Remember that quality of nerve recovery drops with gaps of greater than 5 millimeters. Moving on to nerve transfer, this is indicated in the setting of proximal nerve injury, 
loss of shoulder abduction and external rotation, loss of shoulder abduction and flexion, and loss of elbow flexion. So starting with proximal nerve injury, the goal of a nerve transfer in this setting is to deliver new axons and stimulus before degeneration of motor end plates and irreversible muscle damage. The priority is to restore shoulder abduction slash external rotation, elbow flexion, and finger function. Another indication for nerve transfer is loss of shoulder abduction and external rotation, and in this setting you may do a spinal accessory nerve or cranial nerve 11 to suprascapular nerve transfer. Another indication, as we mentioned, is loss of shoulder abduction and flexion. And in this setting, you may do a Leechevengvong procedure, which is a nerve transfer from the triceps motor branch of the radial nerve to the axillary nerve. Finally, another indication for nerve transfer is loss of elbow flexion. And in this setting, you will do what's known as an Oberlin transfer, which is the FCU motor branch to the upper trunk slash musculocutaneous nerve. As far as outcomes of a nerve transfer, these have potentially similar outcomes as tendon transfers for irreparable proximal nerve injuries. So finally, moving on to tendon transfers, the indication is when return of function through nerve regeneration is not expected. In terms of outcomes, a tendon transfer is better in patients less than 30 years old and more distal locations. Outcomes are also improved in children due to neuroplasticity and know that one grade of motor strength loss is expected following transfer. Now let's go over some of these techniques in a bit more detail. So starting with observation and sequential EMG, as far as the technique, active surveillance is done daily or weekly by the same surgeon, and exploration is indicated if no functional recovery is made after three months. These patients may also go functional splinting and rehabilitation focusing on sensory re-education and prevention of joint contracture. Moving on to direct muscular neurotization, this technique will involve inserting the proximal nerve stump into a nearby muscle belly. Moving on to surgical repair, let's go over epineurial repair and fascicular repair. As far as the approach for epineurial repair, this is a primary repair of the epineurium, which requires resection of the proximal neuroma and distal glioma to healthy fascicles. Alignment is aided by the epineurial blood vessels. As far as the technique, you will resect the zone of injury until, quote, mushrooming of the fascicles is observed. Repair should be tension-free in well-vascularized wound beds. Remember that tension closures compromise perfusion and inhibit Schwann cell activation and regeneration and cause scar formation. Length can be gained with nerve transposition and neurolysis. Moving on to fascicular repair, the approach is similar to an epineurial repair, but you will also repair the perineural sheaths, in which individual fascicles are approximated under a microscope. Theoretically, this provides more accurate alignment of axons over the epineurial repair. The technique involves something called fascicular matching, where topographical sketches can be used for visual alignment. Electrical stimulation can also be used, where the proximal end identifies sensory fascicles in awake patients, and the distal end identifies motor fascicles in acute injuries before significant Wallerian degeneration. Finally, fascicular matching may also involve histologic staining. Complications of fascicular repair is potentially increased scarring and damage to the blood supply. Moving on to nerve grafting, the approach involves creating a tension-free repair by using a graft that is at least 10% longer than the gap, and be sure to ensure the scar from the nerve ends is completely resected. The technique can involve an autologous graft, an acellular allograft, or conduits. The autologous graft is the gold standard for segmental defects of greater than 5 centimeters. Nerve autografts harvested should result in the least morbidity possible. Sources can include the medial and lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerves, the posterior interosseous nerve terminal branches, and the sural nerve. 
Know that cabling can be used for donor-recipient size mismatch. Moving on to the acellular allograph, this is traditionally used for gaps less than 5 centimeters. This is not as effective as an autograft, but have shown promise for large defects unable to be bridged by autograft alone. Finally, conduits are used for defects up to 20 millimeters. This allows coaptation ends without tension, typically with small sensory nerves. Conduits can be made of synthetic polyglycolic acid, polycaprolactone, and some are collagen-based. Collagen conduits allow nutrient exchange and accessibility to neurotrophic factors to the axonal growth zone during regeneration. Complications include donor nerve neuroma formation, as well as an immune response and rejection of allograft. Moving on to a nerve transfer, as far as the approach, the redundant or non-essential nerve is transferred to a nerve affected by a proximal injury. The approach will involve selecting a donor motor nerve close to target muscles. The technique involves what's known as a coaptation technique, which can be end-to-end or end-to-side. In end-to-side, the donor nerve is attached to the recipient nerve through a perineurial window. The goal is to, quote, supercharge damaged nerves by preservation of motor end plates until new axons can regenerate from more proximal injury. Finally, moving on to tendon transfer, as far as the approach, you will maintain or restore passive joint mobility before tendon transfer. The redundant or non-essential muscle tendon unit is transferred to restore a loss function. It's optimal to have one straight line of pull and transfer a muscle synergistic to the loss function. Remember, one tendon transfer should perform one function. In terms of the technique, you will select a donor and recipient with a similar power. The power is determined by cross-sectional area. You can also select a synergistic donor and recipient, for example, wrist extensors and finger flexors. Finally, set the appropriate excursion. This can be adjusted with a pulley or tenodesis effect. Use the Smith 357 rule. Three centimeters of excursion for wrist flexors and wrist extensors, 5 cm excursion for the EDC, FPL, and EPL, and 7 cm excursion for the FDS and the FTP. Complications include adhesions and poor tendon gliding. One other complication to mention after peripheral nerve injury is neuroma formation. As far as the incidence, true incidence is unknown due to most being asymptomatic, but up to 30% in amputees has been reported. Treatment of neuroma formation can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management can include pharmacological, for example, gabapentin, anticonvulsants, antidepressants, etc., local nerve destruction, for example, injection of phenol or botulinum toxin, cautery, etc., rehabilitation, and or work modification. Operative options include resection and targeted muscle reinnervation or TMR. Now, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis of peripheral nerve injury. As far as the natural history of disease, Pain is the first modality to return. An advancing tenel sign is the most reliable indication of recovery. Nerve repair or reconstruction is unpredictable after six months. Reinnervation by 18 months is the goal for muscle preservation. Moving on to prognostic variables, favorable prognostic variables include a younger age, distal level of injury, and sharp transections and stretch injuries. So younger age is the most important factor influencing success of nerve recovery and children in particular have a more favorable prognosis. Distal level of injury is the second most important, and the more distal the injury, the better the chance of recovery. Know that peripheral nerve injuries include those affecting the brachial plexus. Finally, sharp transections and stretch injuries have a better prognosis than crush or blast injuries. Negative prognostic variables include older age, proximal level of injury, crush injuries, and a repair delay, which has a worse prognosis of recovery, 
and remember that the time limit for repair is 18 months. Finally, as far as prognosis with treatment, this is variable on several factors including injury location, age of the patient, and type of injury. Neuropraxia resolves with conservative measures. Axonopmesis and neuropmesis may improve with the repair, tendon transfers, and our nerve transfers. The endoneurium must be intact for full recovery of an injured peripheral nerve and may lead to chronic neuropathic pain. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 35-year-old secretary from a small mid-Atlantic paper product distributor has numbness and tingling in her ulnar two digits for the last seven years, particularly when she is at work. At work, she often has to keep her elbows in a flex position while typing for long periods of time. She has tried night splints and some ergonomic changes at work, which have not benefited her. She is referred to your clinic and you order electrodiagnostic studies, which demonstrate objective evidence of cubital tunnel syndrome. Which of the following findings may be seen on her nerve conduction studies? And the choices are 1. Fibrillations 2. Positive sharp waves 3. Prolonged distal sensory latency 4. Fasciculations and 5. Increased nerve conduction velocity The correct answer to this question is 3. Prolonged distal sensory latency So the patient has cubital tunnel syndrome, which can be potentiated by advancing age, compression, decreased blood flow, fibrosis, and increased tension on the ulnar nerve. The patient's nerve conduction study would show decreased conduction velocity and increased distal sensory latency. Electrodiagnostics such as nerve conduction studies or electromyography are often performed to confirm clinical suspicion of ulnar neuropathy. Conduction velocity below 50 meters per second across the elbow motor latencies of greater than 4.3 milliseconds, distal sensory latency of greater than 3.2 milliseconds, or a decrease in amplitude of 50% as compared to the contralateral extremity are all considered abnormal and indicative of a compressive neuropathy. Amplitude is an assessment of the number of conducting axons but is somewhat more difficult to test and typically the sensory nerve action potentials or SNAPs are affected before the compound muscle action potentials or CMAPs. Early stages of compressive neuropathy may show no changes on EMG or nerve conduction studies. However, as the compression progresses, demyelination will occur and the conduction velocity will decrease. EMG may be normal until late in the disease process. Lundberg reviewed the history of peripheral nerve repair and identified future directions. The authors discussed that repair in the setting of nerve transection begins with formation of receptors on the surface of Schwann cells. Neurotrophic factors are released by macrophages and include IL-6, FGFs, epidermal growth factor, and ILGF. The distal segment of the transected nerve undergoes Wallerian degeneration and is digested by macrophages. This process stimulates Schwann cell mitotic activity which supports axonal growth. The author concludes that future directions include focusing on neurotrophic factors and their impact on axonal outgrowth. Friedman et al. review electrodiagnostic studies in compressive neuropathies of the upper extremity. The authors discuss that nerve conduction studies are performed on motor and sensory nerves and assess latency and velocity. The electrical potential created when a motor nerve is stimulated is the CMAP, while EMG evaluates muscles at rest and after stimulation. The authors note that EMGs detect insertional activity, which may be decreased in fibrotic muscle, and fibrillations, which are irregular, more acute, and activity resulting from axonal damage. 
They stress that electrodiagnostic studies are a supplement, not a replacement, for a history and a physical exam. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, fibrillations are a sign of hypersensitive muscle fibers with spontaneous firing and are a finding of nerve injury on EMG, not nerve conduction studies. Answer two, positive sharp waves are also a sign of abnormal hypersensitive muscle fibers with spontaneous firing and are a finding of nerve injury on EMG, not nerve conduction studies. Answer four, fasciculations are irregular discharges of a single motor unit and are larger and more complex than fibrillations. Fasciculations are present on nerve injury on the EMG, not nerve conduction studies. And finally, answer five, decreased, not increased conduction velocity would be expected with a compressive neuropathy. And moving on to the final question, which statement most accurately describes the physiology of peripheral nerve regeneration following an axonot mesic lesion? And the choices are one, the proximal nerve segment undergoes Wallerian degeneration. Two, axon growth occurs from the distal segment to the proximal segment. Three, neurotrophic factors direct phagocytic activity. Four, proximal axon budding allows for antegrade or distal axon migration. And five, axoplasm and myelin are degraded distally predominantly by Schwann cells for the first 12 months following injury. The correct answer to this question is four, proximal axon budding allows for antegrade or distal axon migration. So axonotmesis is a disruption of the nerve axon following injury. Repair slash regeneration of the nerve occurs via proximal budding followed by antegrade or distal axon migration. The peripheral nerve regeneration process begins with the distal segment undergoing Wallerian degeneration where the axoplasm and myelin are degraded distally by phagocytes. Existing Schwann cells proliferate and line up along the basement membrane. Proximal budding occurs after a one-month delay. This is followed by sprouting axons that mitigate an antegrade fashion to connect to the distal tubule. Repair of the nerve can take months and often have poor outcomes. Lee et al. reviewed peripheral nerve injury and repair. They commented that Wallerian degeneration, for example, breakdown of the axon distal to the site of injury, is initiated 48 to 96 hours after transection. The Schwann cells then align themselves longitudinally, creating columns of cells called Buechner bands. At the tip of the regenerating axon is the growth cone. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, the proximal nerve segment undergoes Wallerian degeneration is incorrect as it's actually the distal nerve segment that undergoes Wallerian degeneration. Answer two, the axon growth occurs from the distal segment to the proximal segment is incorrect as actually the axon growth occurs from the proximal segment to the distal segment. Answer three, neurotrophic factors direct phagocytic activity is incorrect as neurotrophic factors actually do not direct phagocytic activity. And finally, answer five, axoplasm and myelin are degraded distally predominantly by Schwann cells for the first 12 months following injury is incorrect as Schwann cells do not degrade axoplasm and myelin. That's all for this review about peripheral nerve injury and repair. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.